Hi. So this is a follow-up lecture to the lecture on the poetics, still sort of looking at Aristotle, uh, influence and some theoretical tenets. So uh, Aristotle focused on tragedy, and he broke up the definition of tragedy into seven parts. So this, is, this is worth noting. The first one is that it involves mimesis, which I've described, sort of an imitation of life. The second part is that it's serious, so there's a kind of, how should I say, somber, uh, purposeful approach. It's not frivolous, in other words. The third is that the action is complete and has magnitude. So it kind of, what people call scaling the heights of work. Four, it's made up of language that has a pleasurable quality to the ear. So it has rhythm and harmony. There's kind of like something beautiful to listen to. And five, that the pleasure and harmony, rhythm and harmony, I should say, in language, is not the same throughout the entire work, right? So that it, it sort of appears. So maybe some things are in verse, for example. Other things are in prose. Other things are sung, right? So instead of having one mode, there are several modes. So this is related to diction. Number six, it's performed rather than narrated. Seven, it arouses the emotions of pity and fear and accomplishes the effect of purification or purgation of these emotions. So I'm going to go through that list again just to kind of reinforce. The seven parts of tragedy, mimesis, kind of seriousness, action is complete and with magnitude, Language that is pleasing to the ear. Five is that language is pleasing to the ear, but not always, this, not always the same. So it's not always in the same mode. Six, it's performed rather than narrated. Seven, it arouses the emotions of pity and fear and accomplishes catharsis. The next thing that Aristotle does is asserts that any, tra any tragedy can be divided into six parts. Spectacle, which is, you know, as you might describe it, visual appearance of the stage and the actors. The means of imitation, language, rhythm, and harmony can divide it into melody and diction which is how the work is composed. The agents of the action can be character and thought. So thought is the intellectual qualities that are in display and the moral qualities that are in concert with that. And finally, there's plot or mythos the combination of incidents and actions. So these are the six parts of tragedy, component parts. They just say the components, sort of like building a car. 
So this is the stuff inside the car. So inside the car, there's spectacle, there's uh, melody, kind of right, the melody of it, the score, the diction of it, the composition of it, character, and thought. And finally, there's plot. So this reverses a little bit what I said first lecture, which is that plot comes first. And the only reason I'm doing this is because um, when Aristotle talks about the components of tragedy, uh, this is sort of the order in which he talks about them, but um, in the poetics, uh, but they're all, you know, part and parcel of the same. So of course, Aristotle, Aristotle argues that plot is the most important. Characters are there to serve the action of the story. Now this changes as drama, you know, obviously we're not in the 5th century BC anymore. <laughs> um, as drama has evolved, that's changed, right? What's happened is that characters now are more important than the plot, by and large. When people say character-driven, the characters are driving the plot. In Aristotle's day, the plot is driving the action, and the characters are serving the action. So I think the closest thing today that, you know, sort of a lot of uh, action films have this quality, that it's really, the characters are just vehicles for the action to happen, right? Um, but, at, but in a contemporary sense, that's frowned upon, right? Uh, but Aristotle would be very happy about that <laughs> to some degree, in the sense that he felt that plot was the most important. So Aristotle argues that among the six elements that, that make up this car, that is drama, uh, plot is the most important. Characters are next, and they're not there to advance the action of the story. Because the Ends by which we pursue in life our happiness and our misery all take the form of action. So this is an interesting distinction. Aristotle in the Poetics talks about, for example, a character pursuing their happiness. That happiness is an activity rather than a quality of a character. It's something that is doing. So I think maybe think about it this way. Action and drama is doing. It's, it's action, right? So it's like everything is action, including speech. Everything takes the form of action. So chasing happiness, chasing, plunging into despair. That's an active, that's sort of an action involved in that. For Aristotle... Diction and thought were less significant than plot. For example, a series of very well-written speeches, in Aristotle's case, he would have said, that's cool, but what's the plot doing? Right? So, so the the speeches may be well written, but if they don't have if they're not serving the force of a well-structured tragedy, then eh. So I think this is kind of a fascinating thing because it depends on what Andromeda's uh, primary focus is. 
And it's useful to think about how, what may be a good way to think about this is that you can have a brilliant speech, but where's the structure? What is it serving? What larger structure is it serving? And how is that structure holding it together? For Aristotle, a very powerful element in tragedy is the notion of recognition. Character, uh, for Aristotle, character reveals the individual motivations of the characters in the play, what they want, what they don't want, how they react to certain situations. And this is more important than, let's say, universal or general truths or reasoning. What people might call the ideas of a play. Um, spectacle. A pretty spectacle can happen without a play. For Aristotle, set and costume is not really the writer's domain. Yeah, set and costume are not the writer's domain, according to Aristotle. So it doesn't matter how like beautiful the spectacle is. Um, your job is to focus on plot, character, and action and how it's put together. So the word catharsis was used by Aristotle, and it was a word that he took from the world of medicine. So in, in ancient Greece, catharsis was a word that was used by doctors to talk about purgation, the flushing of contaminants out of a system or by priests to talk about religious purification. So this becomes, I think, a fascinating metaphor for uh, what a drama may be trying to achieve, or specifically what a tragedy may be trying to achieve, which is you're trying to flush the contaminants out of the system. So it presupposes that the system is contaminated and that the search in the play is about, I mean, the ultimate apotheosis of the play is to try to get to the point where those contaminants are purged. So there's a, let's say, so there's a poison, there's a poison in the well of society. The play is trying to root it out and say, boom, out of there, right? So that the action of the play is driving toward that. Even if the characters may or may not know that that's happening, it may happen to them. Uh, but that is a result. Um, and this is also related. So the priests uh, in ancient Greece also used the word catharsis. And for priests, it referred to religious purification. So it's a kind of spiritual cleansing that happens. Um, and so that there's something therapeutic that occurs in art whereby the body or mind expels the contaminants and becomes clean and healthy. So that going to see a play, so I'm just going to extend this metaphor, so going to see a play 
allows society to come face to face with trouble, right? With trouble, moral, deep moral questions, ambiguity, things get wrestled. And then through that process, the trouble gets wrestled down and out. <laughs> uh, the contaminants get expelled. Uh, there's the idea that drama is a mechanism for purgation, for kind of basically for clearing the air, right? So that feeling of when you see a work of art and you're like, oh, I feel lighter, or I feel like I understand the world better, or I feel I've understood something better about myself as a human being, that those are things that are part of art, right? That art is sort of making that happen. And so if you backtrack that as a writer, if you're looking at text-based work, the writer is making that happen. The writer is kind of putting that emotion, uh, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, but uh, the result being that there's a kind of force to the work, kind of force to tragedy, specifically thinking about tragedy, that allows this to occur, that allows us to come to the fore and enacts a kind of therapeutic response. And what's interesting about um, the ancient Greek amphitheaters is that they were situated, a lot of them, um, near hospitals. And there's, this th there's some scholarship to indicate that uh, uh, doctors and nurses at these hospitals would leave the windows open at the hospital uh, so that they, the patients could hear the play that was happening next door. And that in fact, it was considered a kind of therapeutic act, but that there was healing happening by listening to the play by those patients in the hospital and also by the people that were witnessing the play in the theater. Um, so there's a very close relationship between art and healing um, or healing properties of art. I should say, uh, or the potential healing properties of art. I mean, literally, that theaters and hospitals were next to each other, um, and that 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 theater is a space for some kind of healing to occur, even if it's negative healing. You know, that, and we can get into that uh, someday. Talk about work that is is going at it from a kind of negative capability impulse, right? Um, but I'm gonna stay on the positive for a second. So thinking about Oedipus and thinking about tragedy. Um, in watching a tragedy, the emotions of pity and fear or pity and terror is aroused in us and we're then purged of these emotions. We aren't feeling real pity or real fear. So this is the idea of looking at an imitation of something. We're looking at fiction. We may feel pity for Oedipus when he learns that he's killed his father and married his mother, but it's certainly a different kind of pity than, you know, um, being in the middle of a war zone uh, or, you know, witnessing the injustices that happen against the homeless. 
objects in society. We're looking at fiction and feeling feelings, but they're, they're based on an imitation of something. We know that Oedipus isn't real, in other words. We know that it's a character, and the actor's playing them. Uh, we know that the actor's not really suffering when they are suffering as Oedipus. So the double consciousness that happens in acting and in viewing, right? We're watching an actor play someone else. We all buy into the agreement together that they're playing someone else, um, and that for the two hours or 90 minutes or hour or 10 minutes or however long the thing is, we're all agreeing that that's what's happening uh, and that we're going to go on that journey together. Uh, so the act of pretend is operative. You can empathize with Oedipus without feeling guilt or obligation to help Oedipus, right? We're kind of watching the event happen. Watching tragedy has a cathartic effect because you can let go of a lot of emotional tension. And it can prepare you. I think this is, I'll kind of throw this out there, but I think that watching drama, you know, when it's at its kind of best, uh, when it's working, I should say, the beauty of it is that it actually prepares you, right? It kind of lets you, whether you're watching situations that you've gone through in your life or whether you're watching situations that you may never go through in your life. I mean, I don't think that, I mean, Oedipus is, a, is an extreme example, right? It's sort of like what happens to Oedipus doesn't happen necessarily every day, okay? Um, but we're, we go through the, for that journey and we're kind of learning about it as an audience and we're taking it with us. We're taking some of those lessons with us and maybe applying them to our daily lives or at least trying to. One of the interesting things about Aristotle thinking about catharsis is that you know, again, he was writing as somebody who was observing tragedy. He was not a playwright himself. So I think that he was theorizing and when he was and he was watching the audience. So he was like, hey, when audiences come to a tragedy, it seems to have a cathartic effect on them. Um what Aristotle is not saying is that all tragedies should have a cathartic effect. So I think this is another compelling misreading of Aristotle uh, over the years is that there's this notion that you must have catharsis in order to have a tragedy. Actually, I don't. And in fact, even, even Aristotle was theorizing in his notes that have been collected over time didn't say that that was the end goal of tragedy, right? That, that it's that for some tragedies that he witnessed, this seemed to be an effect. And he found that compelling, right? He found, oh, that's kind of like, so I think this notion of watching the audience, how does an audience respond? Um, and that, that Aristotle was not only looking at the stage and figuring out like, oh, how are these writers kind of making what they make? 
but he was also turning his gaze back on the audience and going, how is the audience responding? And that was like really crucial. So I, I would say that catharsis is an out, uh, something that could happen when you watch a tragedy, but it's not the end goal of tragedy. Um, so plot, or the word mythos uh, in the poetic, so plot, um, can also be applied, obviously, to other art forms, uh, to sculpture, to music. Uh, the mythos of a piece of art is the way it's structured and organized in order to make a coherent statement. So when Aristotle talks about plot and tragedy, he's not just referring to who did what to whom, but he's speaking about how the events in the story come together to bring out the deeper general themes. How is the plot put together to bring out the themes in the story? Plot is central, uh, again, to Aristotle, because for him, that's where the value of it lies. And this is a way of thinking about it. If character were central to tragedy, again, thinking from Aristotle's point of view, we'd be watching Oedipus in order to learn something about Oedipus and what makes him tick. But the character of Oedipus is uninteresting. Why should we care about Oedipus, the fictional character? From Aristotle's point of view, what's interesting about Oedipus is that in watching what happens to Oedipus, the plot, we can learn about ourselves and the world. The way the work is structured draws our mind toward truth, to general truths and ideas. So this changes, right, as I said earlier, when you get to character-driven plot, right, which is a more, of a more of a feature of 20th and 21st century writing. You got to work that is driven by character, and it's actually about character, right? It's sort of like... I am, I am watching this to learn about who Oedipus is. <laughs> and so the difference being, I'm watching this to learn about who Oedipus is, but really about what Oedipus' position in the world is and what the world around Oedipus is. So maybe that's a better way of thinking about how plot functions and how plot operates and the way Aristotle thinks about it. The plot is this container where we're able to look at a character relationship to the world. But it's not necessarily about that. About the, the character is not what, what's interesting. What's interesting is the shape of the world that the character is in, maybe the forces of the world that the character is part of, uh, and maybe the forces of the world that the character or the characters are... Uh, battling against or fighting for, etc. So Antigone is, I think, a really interesting play in this regard because it has a kind of dual narrative. Um, and, it, and it's a play about dialectic, right? Um, so, so I'll just throw that out there um, in the land of the poetics. Um, more on the poetics. Um, so Aristotle does say 
the for a plot to be complete, it must have a beginning, middle, and end. Um, that wherever you start the story, you're going to deal with the consequences of that beginning. The end is a point that naturally follows from the preceding events, but the ending may not have consequences beyond its ending, right? So, in other words, we're not thinking about, well, what happened after that play is over, right? The ending is just the ending, and it's up to us to think what the consequences will be, but it's not the writer's job, in other words, to, to foreground that. And the middle, of course, is uh, how those events, how the beginning and ending are connected, right? So it's like what connects the before and after, in other words. Um, the magnitude of the story is important to Aristotle. Um, so I think this is interesting in terms of the think, thinking about time because uh, dramatic writing is a durational art form, especially in theater. Um, but even in film, you're dealing with, you know, you're dealing with edits and you're dealing with time and you're dealing with rhythm, right? And you're dealing with length. Um, uh, one of the crucial things that Aristotle talks about in terms of the magnitude of a story is that the tragedy must be take must be of moderate length so that it's taken in by memory. Um, that you can retain it. So this is how it actually has to, again, it has to do with the audience. So it's actually, can you retain the story in your mind? How is it operating in your mind? Aristotle, Aristotle does suggest that the longer the play, the greater the magnitude, provided the poet, writer, can hold the tragedy together as one coherent statement. He suggests the action should be long enough to allow the main character to pass through a number of necessary or probable steps that take him from fortune to misfortune or vice versa. Um, Aristotle insists on the unity of plot, but not that the plot has to be about the life of one person. This is often missed when people read the poetics, so I think I'll bring it up. It's not meant to be about you're just following the life of one individual. Our lives consist of all sorts of disconnected episodes, and the story of a person's life would rarely have a completeness necessary for a unified plot. So one of the things that Aristotle suggests is that the writer selects a series of events from a character's life and crafts them into a coherent whole. You're trying to find like the most concentrated series of events, and that's where you're going to show us. So there's a fiction writer whose name escapes me, but who talks about, you know, you're you're choosing the best bits. You're not choosing the boring bits to show. Uh, and among the best bits, that's what that what's that's how you try to craft a coherent whole for your story. Um, and so this is something that can then allow for magnitude to occur. So I'm just going to bring that back around because I think that um, magnitude has to do with density, gravity, and weight in writing. Um, 
but also has to do with big ideas, right? So the bigger the ideas in a work, uh, maybe, though not always, um, there's a kind of weight and density to the work. Aristotle distinguishes between poetry and history. He says that history deals with what happened, what's already happened, right? And that poetry deals with what might happen. Presents the possible as probable or necessary. Um, and I think this idea of necessary is really, I think, something I want to highlight here. Because sometimes people say, I want to show you a history play. And I'm like, okay, cool. And? <laughs> right? So it's not enough if we're writing something historical to show you what happened, right? Where else is it pointing? I think that one of the crucial things about drama is that it actually does deal with the present and the probable or necessary, the possible. In drama, you're kind of looking backwards to look forwards, but you're in the present. So it's kind of like two vector points and there's a figure in the middle and it's like, how can I go forwards given? And I think one of the reasons that Oedipus is so, such a great play is because it actually does that so beautifully. It has absolutely been a character that's affected by actions in the past, so that's history. They're going toward the future. You're stuck in their present. They figure out something happens in their present that changes what their future will be, right? So that's kind of like a way to think about it. And there's a kind of necessity. Tragedy gives us a feeling of necessity to the way certain characters behave in certain situations. And it gives an audience insight into, you know, fate or choice or, you know, whatever you're trying to dramatize. So for Aristotle, and of course, this has been contested over time, but for Aristotle, I'm just thinking about Aristotle, the worst kind of plot <laughs> was the episodic plot where there was no connection or necessity between the events that are being de depicted, right? Where it's just a kind of random, for Aristotle, a random series of events, right? That would not fly with Aristotle. He would say, what are you doing? That's horrible, you know. But of course, you know, over time in drama, there have been all kinds of, of dramatic works that have, that have been built um, episodically and where, in fact, the, the juxtaposition of episodes is not consequential. Um, but that's a lecture for another day. Um, but I just wanted to throw that out. For Aristotle, tragedy is most effective when the events that occur unexpe are unexpected and yet somehow feel logical. So that feeling of like, I don't, oh my God, I'm surprised. I didn't know that was going to happen. And then in retrospect, you go, oh, of course that happened, right? That's organic. The ending, therefore, feels like a necessary consequence 
of the action that's preceded it. Even if the outcome feels unexpected. That's why when we talk about an ending that's satisfying, there's this idea that we've seen all these things and we've been surprised along the way and then we go, oh, right, but that happened because that happened because that happened. And it ended that way. That's the only way it could have ended it. So when as an audience we have that feeling of like, oh, of course that's the ending, right? Even if it's a surprise ending. But that feeling of of course is because everything we've seen before seems to lead up lead to that moment. And it's very satisfying. It feels like you, there's a sense of, I'm going to use the word closure, but I don't think it is closure. I think it's like a, it's like uh, the picture's completed somehow, right? Just to think about it visually. Essentially for Aristotle, a good plot is a complete chain of, ca of causal chain, I should say, so cause and effect, causal chain that leads with necessity or probability from beginning to end. The beginning is the first link in a chain, uh, and then the events that follow are a consequence and so forth. Each event follows the next until we arrive at the end, which is also necessary and probable. Um, the ending may complete the chain, it may break the chain, it may just conclude the chain of events. I'll reiterate that Aristotle hated episodic plots. Um, and I think that what's crucial, and I think one of the reasons I think I'm going to reinforce this idea of um, relentlessness with the Greek, ancient Greek plays that are extant, is that the plot of the tragedy should consist of one uninterrupted causal chain with no superfluous elements. It's why those plays are so powerful. It's just like relentless. It's just like, it's just sticking to what it's gonna do and it just goes like a house of fire. Um, yeah, and it feels inexorable. Uh, and I think there's, there's no denying the power of that. But what I think is useful to point out is that the Greek idea of plot uh, mythos is not the same as the uh, Anglo, Anglophone, English idea of plot. So I think the English idea of plot is the sum total of events in a story. But for Aristotle, may, this is kind of fascinating. For Aristotle, it's not always about what we see on stage, but the links in a causal chain. So in Oedipus, there's a link in the chain that we don't see that happens before the play begins. For Aristotle, that would still be part of the plot. We don't see it, hear about it, right? What happened on the road? Oh, I killed my father. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, this gets revealed in the play, 
but it's a it's a link that is that we don't see on stage. Um, and I just think that's that's an interesting thing because for Aristotle, the causal chain, especially preceding the beginning of the play, it goes almost like the play has started. This might be a useful way to think about it. The play has already started when we start the play for real, for Aristotle. As opposed to in a lot of, I'm going to use the word English or American, I know that's, those terms are complicated, but um, that a lot of the way, I'll, think of it, I'll say it this way, that a lot of the way that Western drama has evolved over time hasn't has interpreted this idea to mean that what we're seeing on stage that the beginning of a play is the beginning and nothing preceded it do you know what i mean so it's not in a chain that the chain begins at the beginning of the play that the events that we see in the play or the play that's over for aristotle the chain begins before the play begins and that we start in the middle. Maybe that's a useful way to think about it. We start kind of in the middle, the chain. And the audience may or may not know that, but it becomes revealed to us that we are actually in the middle of a story. Um, that, and that's maybe what gives some of those strategies their power. Um, I'll sort of open this uh, conversation a little bit more to say that for Aristotle, history is one thing after another and that the events sort of follow, but, you know, we don't know what the connections are between them necessarily. In fact, sometimes there aren't any, to be honest, although one could argue against that. For Aristotle, history deals in isolated and particular events. Um, and that in fiction, you're trying to create causal chains. You're trying to actually put events together where you're trying to make sense of them. Um, trying to trace a logical sequence between them and among them. A tragic action shows us that there is order uh, in the world around us. Uh, we learn that certain kinds of behavior choices lead to consequences. Tragedy draws out a pattern out of the meaninglessness of existence. That's probably the best way to think about it. And in fact, even Beckett in Waiting for Godot, and if you look at, right, absurdist existential period of writing that emerged in the 50s and 60s, 1960s, this still holds true. Tragedy is drawing a pattern out of the meaningless swirl of existence. In absurdism, the order of events maybe tends to reinforce the idea that the world is meaningless. <laughs> uh, in tragedy, there's a search for meaning. Right? There's a kind of search for, there's a belief actually that meaning can happen. Meaning can happen. Because the tragedy that's created by the writer and sort of organized by the writer and structured by the writer allows meaning to occur uh, because the world is meaningless, right? So 
this idea that stories give us order, right? That we're kind of, we go to stories because we're looking for order in our lives. And that's really what that's about. Um, what's interesting about Aristotle talking about plot is that he says in the poetics, all of this is about the poetics, um, is that the, cause, the causal chain in the work doesn't always need to be evident, right? So it's not like a predictable, like, oh, that happened, so that happened, so that happened. It's more like it's more interesting, actually, for the viewer if we don't always know why one thing leads to another. Um, the writer needs to figure it out, but the viewer is kind of like in a place of the unexpected. Unexpected twists or reversals, etc., make us aware of how of how we're not very good at sort of understanding how things are linked, right? Um, it makes, you know, when, when we get like a reversal in a story, I think for an audience, it's like, we go, oh, I, I should have been looking at all the clues. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, we forget that maybe there were clues laid out for us in the writing and we didn't pick up on them, right? Um, Aristotle also mentions that pity and fear um, that arises because, um, in part because of the sequence of events that are portrayed on stage. Um, and that we... we start to have a moment of recognition or an idea of recognition about our own ignorance and vulnerability as we see Oedipus go through uh, their ignorance and vulnerability in their, in their recognition. So late in the poetics, um, Aristotle introduces the concepts of reversal of fortune and recognition. So I mentioned recognition briefly in his discussion of simple and complex plots. All plots lead from beginning to end in a probable or necessary sequence of events. Uh, but the plot uh, needs to have, or hopefully will have, an element of reversal of fortune or recognition uh, to make the plot more interesting. Uh, in a plot that has reversal, um, you know, a character that thinks they're in good shape suddenly finds out they're lost or they're, they've lost all their fortune, etc. Um, they have to recover it in the middle of the show. Um, and in plots that revolve around recognition, it's the idea of going from ignorance to knowledge. The discovery makes the character learn something about themselves, but sometimes brings hatred and misery to the people around them. That's certainly true in Oedipus. Um, and, you know, and for Aristotle, plots that have this moment of recognition are often accompanied by reversal of fortune. So that both happen. So, for instance, Oedipus discovers uh, who his mother is, and that creates a reversal of his fortune from somebody who's like a powerful king 
to somebody who becomes disgraced by this, right? Um, so they both happen. Um, but, you know, reversal of fortune and recognition sometimes go together and are intimately connected. And they help uh, achieve feelings of pity and fear in an audience. Uh, Aristotle also talks about suffering, right? So not only um, recognition and reversal of fortune, but also a third part of plotting, which is suffering. Um, a character will suffer, right? So not only will there be a reversal of fortune or a moment of recognition, a great recognition, but also a part of plot where what we call the trials and tribulations of the character, right? So uh, sometimes destructive, sometimes painful. Um, in a latter section of uh, the poetics, uh, Aristotle talks about the different parts of the performance. So the prologue, episode, exode, uh, and the choral portions consisting of the parode, parode, and stasimon. Um, stasimon is S-T-A-S-I-M-O-N. Uh, in addition, some tragedies have songs, or comos, C-O-M-M-O-S, which is a lamentation sung by an actor or chorus. The parode, uh, parode, P-A-R-O-D-E, is the first full statement of the chorus. Everything that precedes it is prologue. The stasimon is the choral song. <coughs> the action that takes place between choral songs is an episode. Everything that follows the last choral song is an exode, E-X-O-D-E. We're certainly familiar with the terms of reversal of fortune and recognition. Um, you know, the idea of, I think most action films sort of use these concepts. Uh, also, in, in The Empire Strikes Back, for example, um, which is full of, you know, uh, core Aristotelian stuff. Uh, Luke discovers that um, the little green guy is Yoda. Uh, Luke discovers that he is Darth Vader's son, right? So these are big moments of recognition in the story. Uh, so I'm just going to sort of look a little bit about there's some conjecture from scholars around sort of the latter portion of poetics, because of course it's a collection of notes from lectures. And a later chapter where Aristotle discusses plot, um, where uh, there are references to a very tightly structured plot um, that some scholars think maybe Aristotle didn't write this, that it's actually someone else. 
Um, and that we've, you know, the notes were either reconstructed badly or misinterpreted. Um, is there some, some, um, contradictions, uh, that don't seem intentional, in other words, in some of the discussions around plot in the latter part of the poetics. Um, but it's specifically a section where Aristotle starts talking about choral songs and speeches. Um, you know, a spoken prologue, an exode that frames the choral songs, episodes that are inserted between choral songs. Um, the choral songs are like the refrain in a pop song. The spoken bits are like a verse. The spoken bits advance the action and deal with particulars of the play. The choral songs frame the action and discuss their overall themes. So... For anybody who knows musicals, <laughs> which is a very, very much a form, um, totally operates this way, right? Um, musicals, uh, you have the spoken bits, kind of, if it has spoken bits, kind of moving, or recitative, it's moving the story along, and then you have the songs that frame the action and discuss the overall themes. I mean, that's, that's the most essential way of, of framing this. Um, moving more forward into Aristotle, uh, suggests that the best kinds of plots are complex plots, complex plots, sorry, that arouse fear and pity, and says that there are three plots that should be avoided. And this is very interesting. Um, Aristotle says, we should avoid plots that show a good man going from happiness to misery, since such events seem more odious than fearful or pitiable. We should avoid plots to show a bad man going from misery to happiness, since this arouses neither pity nor fear. And thirdly, we should avoid plots that show a bad man going from happiness to misery. Um, we feel pity for the undeserved misfortune. We feel fear. We feel fear if the person we pity is something like ourselves. Uh, Aristotle concludes that the best kind of plot involves the misfortune of someone who is neither good nor bad and whose downfall does not result from some unpleasantness or vice, but rather from an error of judgment, right? So for um, Aristotle, it's not about a good guy or a bad guy, right? Just to put it bluntly, it's about someone, you know, who's kind of mixed up, right? And uh, they have a tragic flaw, and they have an error in judgment, and that's how the plot sort of manifests. So for, uh, for Aristotle, a good plot consists of focusing around a single issue. The hero must go from fortune to misfortune rather than vice versa. Uh, the idea of the downfall. Uh, uh, the misfortune must result from a tragic flaw. And the hero should be of some worth as a person. So... Um, I think this goes to, like, why should we care about this character kind of thing? Why should we care about this character going through this? So they need to be worthy of our empathy or worthy of, a telling the, of being at the center of the story. Now, all of this can be argued. Um, who determines worthiness? Blah, 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 blah. Um, but I think the idea of, like, why this... If you're going to center around a single person, why is that person compelling? Uh, you know, why are we following that story? 
a lot of tragedies tend to focus around a few families. So the tragedies around the families of Oedipus and Orestes, um, that, you know, all of these families, those are family dramas, you know, um, that suffer great misfortune from errors in judgment, right? The House of Atreus. Um, yeah. Uh, pity and fear uh, are things that Aristotle calls the pleasures of tragedy. It results from plot rather than spectacle. A story like Oedipus's should be able to arouse pity and fear, even if it's told without any acting at all. The poet that relies on spectacle is relying on outside help. The poet who relies only on his own plot is fully responsible for their creation. We feel pity most when friends or family harm one another. Rather than when unpleasantness takes place between enemies or those who are indifferent to one another. So the idea of closeness, right? So friends and family harming one another brings out pity and fear. Like when Medea kills her children, or when, though he doesn't know it, when Oedipus kills his father. There's a, something elemental that rises in an audience, pity and fear, around when characters are close to one another, and there's that feeling of closeness, whether they're friends or family. It could be a character plans to do someone else unwell, and then discovers that there's a family connection between them. The deed can be done or not done. It can take place in either ignorance or knowledge. Aristotle suggests that the best kind of plot is of the third alternative, where recognition allows a harmful deed to be avoided. Right? So a character maybe is going down a path, and in that moment of recognition, where they would have done harm, they don't do harm. Or where the deed is done in ignorance, right? And so then it's like, so I, I often think of Hamlet in this regard. Uh, maybe I think about Hamlet too much. But, um, um, you know, Hamlet kills Polonius, doesn't know it's Polonius. That's behind the curtain. Um, the deed is done in ignorance. But it actually, from that moment on, the play kind of turns. Uh, and it is a point of no return for Hamlet. Um, The Greek word hamartia, H-A-M-R-A-T-I-A, translates pretty directly as error or shortcoming. So this idea of the tragic flaw usually involves the concept of hubris or pride that leads to disaster. Um, one of the things about the way that the Greeks thought about uh, Hamartia, um, tragic flaw, is a little bit different than the Christian, Christian idea, Judeo-Christian idea of ethics. Um, so the ethics the modern Western world has inherited from Christianity, mostly, is an ethics of obligation. Uh, in this system, there are certain moral laws. We're obligated to obey them. A failure to obey these laws represents an unwillingness on our part. If we go against the moral law, we are guilty of breaking the law. This conception of guilt 
draws on an ethical system where immorality is something that can be disobeyed or resisted. In the Greeks, right, the ancient Greeks, ethics was based more on the notion of virtue rather than obligation. The Greek conception of reality is closely tied up to the concepts of goodness and harmony. And this idea is expressed in Plato's theory of forms. The real world is made up of perfect, unchanging forms, and it is our duty to approximate this reality as best we can. Virtue, for the Greeks, is a matter of attaining our real nature and of finding our true form. Moral failure is not a matter of guilty recalcitrance, but simply a matter of error or shortcoming, or of being unable, for whatever reason, to attain our true nature. Hamartia, the tragic flaw, then, represents the Greek and not the Christian conception of moral failure. Greek heroes are not bad people, but are simply good people who fall short in some important respect. Tragedy is less a matter of showing how bad people are punished for their crimes. It is more a matter of showing how ignorance and error can have disastrous effects. The action is tragic precisely because we are all ignorant to some degree, all flawed, and we may all suffer deeply for these errors. This is a cold, hard fact of nature and not a matter of justice and retribution. So this is the sort of ethical framework by which Sophocles, Aeschylus, and Euripides were writing. They're the ancient Greek idea of the cosmos and ethics. Um, And I'm just going to carry on, which is to say there may be a third lecture, but I'm going to try to just amplify these ideas a little bit more. Uh, but maybe I'll do it in a, sec in a third lecture, So, because we've been here almost an hour. So, uh, yeah, there'll be a third lecture on the poetics, and uh, stay tuned.